Hello, and welcome to the podcast M&A Stories, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. I'm Robert Heaton, and I'm joined by my co-host, Toby Tester. In these podcasts, Toby and I share our experiences on various projects that we've both been involved in over the course of our careers, talking about things that have gone well, things that didn't go too well, and things that just completely failed. The purpose of this is that we're hoping that our listeners will learn some valuable lessons from those experiences and that those lessons can be taken forward into your M&A projects. We hope you enjoy listening, so let's get this podcast underway. Hey, morning, Toby. How are you? Oh, fabulous, Robert. Fabulous. How are you going? Uh, similarly, still in lockdown, but I'm looking out my window. Beautiful day here in Melbourne. I wish I was outside. Right. Uh, but if I was outside, we could only go within five kilometers anyway. So uh, there you go. Yeah. Oh, man. I, I feel sorry for um, all Melburnians in the situation. Yeah. I just hope you, you guys get to emerge out as soon as possible. Well, to use the famous Donald Trump words, it is what it is. Oh, man, it is what it is. Yes, yes. I think I'll use that all the time. What do you think? It is what it is. Yeah. We've got a guest with us today. So let me just quickly introduce Norman Wolf. Norman's based in Washington State. He's the founder and CEO of Quantum Leaders. It's a leading voice in bringing about transformation to the core paradigm of business got some very interesting views that I'm sure are going to come through on this podcast. 15-year veteran Hewlett-Packard. He's led and consulted globally with companies large and small, and he's the author of The Living Organization, a, a book on the application of core principles of how the world works and how organizations can create extraordinary impact. How does that go for a, an intro, Norman? Well, that's quite lovely. Thank you so much, Robert. And it's so nice to be here with the two of you. Thank you. So the story Norman's going to tell Toby is he's been on the board of a, a company. The CEO, the founder of this company, had a good feel for the industry. He tended to use his gut feel for decision-making. Boy, don't we know a few CEOs that do that. They had an acquisition history, but at best... Their acquisitions were only performing 30 to 50% successful. New successor came in. That CEO had been mentored by the founder, so he got a similar way of running business. Norman was part of the board, and Norman led a move to change the way that the company approached acquisitions with a view to acquisitions being significantly more successful I hope I've not stolen your thunder there, Norman, but if that's a reasonable summary to kick us off, I'll let you two have a conversation on this yeah. and I'll come in if I need to. That's good, Robert. And I haven't met Norman personally before, but we had a good chat just before this. And I have to be honest, I was kind of mesmerized by what he had to say um, about acquisitions. And he's articulated something that perhaps I've only felt over the decades. So I think this is going to be an incredibly interesting podcast, and yeah. you'll get to understand why, why I'm so mesmerized by this. So go ahead, Norman. Okay, thanks, Toby. As I was explaining a little earlier, my background, as Robert said, I came out of Yolipak. I started consulting with organizations initially locally, but that began to expand out and 
now I consult with companies around the world. One of the things that fascinated me has been the lack of success in the ability for organizations to achieve the strategic objectives. And when I mean, say strategic objectives, what I'm really talking about is any sense of achieving the desired outcomes they set out for themselves. If you look at any of the consulting studies that have been done from McKinsey, Booz Allen, PwC, or even a lot of the academics, the failure rate has been running about 70%, the failure on almost all strategic objectives. And as I began to look at that, I began to realize that we have sort of a way of approaching the accomplishment of results in a very, very straightforward way. We, we set the goal. We define the plan of how we're going to get there, and then we execute the plan. I mean, it's fundamentally a very simple, straightforward approach. And we apply that to our personal lives as well as to our organizational lives. Indeed. If you think about it, a very sort of mechanistic approach to it, especially if you think of it as an organization, you're looking at the organization as a machine that you can program. The leadership team defines the program. We call it setting the strategy deciding where we want to go, how we want to get there, and then the rest of the organization executes it. And that's okay. We still need to do all that. I'm not saying to eliminate it, but it treats the organization as a mechanistic thing that you can create predictability and it's repeatable and scalable and all the things we typically admire. The problem with that is it leaves out a lot of dynamic forces that really impact and affect the outcomes. Mm. When I was younger and, and, and when we were looking in science, we always knew there was this thing called the human factor, but we mm. always tried to eliminate it because it was unpredictable, it was chaotic. It was, and we even gave it a name, it was called the X factor, the human factor. Indeed. So business has actually tried to do that as well because people are messy. And I, I actually had one CEO that I worked with he used to say, if it wasn't for the people, leading an organization would be really great. Why I'm sure you've heard leaders say this yourself. Why can't they just do what I tell them? What's so difficult about that, right? It's and interesting so- you say that, Norman, because sometimes Robert and I had this conversation before about the notion of human resources. In other words, humans are treated literally as resources, i.e. Right. that they're put to work and to do things. But resources, as in like the sort of resources you get out of the ground. Right. <laughs> the other phrase I like is, our people are our most important asset. Well, if you look up the definition of the word asset, that's something of value that I own. Yeah, so, no, I know. I know. I thought we gave up slavery a long time ago. In most- I've, I've so- just got to add a, a, a comical point in there. I, I worked with a CEO at one time, viewed people as assets, and I jokingly used to go in the bathroom and look in the mirror to see if I got a barcode on my forehead. <laughs> Here's the problem with that. When you when you begin to look at organizations this way, and we have for 100, 100 plus years now, there's certain consequences. One is people are considered like cogs in the wheel. So if you try to find engagement or increase engagement, you just literally can't get there. Or how about innovation? If people are waiting for the boss to tell them what to do because that's the way the whole system is set up. Or how about taking ownership and and initiative, which every leader wants from the people. But why would I take ownership and and, and initiative if the boss is supposed to tell me what to do? So within Mm -hmm. this kind of framework, we're actually undermining ourselves. 
When it was first created, it wasn't a bad thing. It was a good step from where we were, but now it no longer applies. So I began to say, okay, where do I turn to look at a better way to do it? And, you know, quite frankly, there's a lot of research and knowledge and studies that have been done, but it's in the field of sociology, philosophy, psychology, the places where we talk about human dynamics and, and, and the, the messy humanness of it. And so I just created a model, I call it the living organization, and it's a, a model that integrates the activity, what we do, how we do it, with the relationships we have, and what I call the context that underlies it all. And a simple understanding of context is just think of it as all the core beliefs, assumptions uh, that we have about how life works. Hmm. Those beliefs and assumptions about how life works defines the behaviors we're going to use to create the outcomes we get. There's a saying that if you want a different outcome, doing the same thing over and over again is the definition of insanity. Hmm. Expecting people to change behaviors without changing the underlying context is like double insanity. So this is kind of the essence of our model is to take into account the relationships that exist and the underlying context that supports it with the outcomes we want to achieve. It's really interesting, uh, Norman. It must be very interesting indeed. How would you sort of like apply that? So, so for example, if we're going through uh, an acquisition, how would this living organization approach uh, differ compared to the more traditional way of doing things? Well, if you look at the traditional way, and I think you used the word transactional in our previous conversation. I mean, you think about how we typically go about doing an acquisition. We look at it as an, typically an asset we're going to buy. So it's a yep. thing in and of itself, right? We look at the numbers. We look at the overlapping customers. Uh, we look at the synergies and eliminating expenses and all that. But that's not what causes an acquisition to be successful. Mm. It's really more how do the two collectives of people come together to work well together for a common purpose. It's more like a marriage than it is a transaction. Right. So in the example that Robert was talking about earlier, the two things I did that applied to this conversation, one is we set up a more strategic planning process. So it was run less by gut feel and more by thought and review and direction and all of that. The other thing we did was when we came to acquisitions, we set up the acquisition more as you're seeking to bring somebody into the family or to marry somebody and, and to take that approach initially. And, and then we did all the normal transactional due diligence as a secondary effort. First, we wanted to make sure that who we were getting into bed with, so to speak, right. okay. uh, was a good fit for right. both parties. So is it interesting to go through this, um, Norman? I'm just sort of writing notes here, but sort of like first there's a sort of like a formal strategy approach. So I suppose to sort of taking a gut feel view is by all means formalize the strategy, but rather than taking that sort of mechanical or transactional approach is when it comes to acquisition integration is very much taking that sort of family view and thinking of bringing another living being on board onto that family. Absolutely. And then finally, obviously, then there's the due diligence between those family members yep. to make sure that we are indeed making sure that this is going to be a, a good marriage. Yep. 
that the, the, the value of the strategy is it gives a context for an acquisition. Right. Right. So, so that you're not going off and saying, gee, like we, like the founder did, I like this. I think we should get into this business. I think it makes yeah. sense. It'll be a lot of fun and, and off we go doing something, but it's got no context. So you can get off into some bizarre acquisitions, which this company did uh, in its early days. So, so that was the purpose of having a well-defined strategy. And then within that context, now you begin to look at the, each acquisition more from its personality fit, if you want to talk about it that way, hmm. from its relationship fit. And, and so one of the things we did was we had a, one of the executive VPs who was actually in, in charge of sales was phenomenal at, at ferreting out relationships. I mean, he just could read the energy of a relationship. And so we put him in charge of the early phase of the acquisitions. And his job was to literally date, go out on dates, if you will, with these prospective acquisitions. There were some acquisitions he brought to us that on paper probably didn't look as good as others. Mm. But because he had a sense and a feel for the personality of the organization. And I'm talking about not just the personality of the leaders. He looked at the personality of the organization and brought to the board some, some acquisitions that on the paper did not look all that good, but in the end proved to be phenomenal acquisitions. Norman, when you describe this, the salesperson that came on to look for these potential acquisitions, would you call that person having a high degree of emotional intelligence? Would that be the right term to use? Yep, absolutely. Emotional intelligence as a measure really defines one's capacity for what we call relationship energy. Right. Intellect might be the capacity for what we call activity and energy. Yeah. You know, EQ would be for the relationship energy. And there's a couple of measures that call spiritual intelligence and things like that. But I, I like to look at it as the maturity index is right. the one we use for the context energy. This maturity index, is this something that you can sort of in some way measure in terms of this, this, this energy? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you, you certainly can. Remember, context can't be seen or measured directly, but it, its its output is behaviors. Right. So you can you can see in behaviors the level of maturity. So, for example, if a person is highly defensive, very strongly arguing for his ego position, you probably consider that person young, immature, hasn't had the experience to develop a sense of broad thinking. On the other hand, a person who can listen objectively to other people's points of view, could appreciate different points of view, could be flexible with ambiguity and uncertainty. Uh, this is somebody you'd probably define as a high mature individual. Right. You can observe those kind of behaviors, whether they're, whether they're exhibiting those traits or not. The interesting thing, if you think about it, an organization exactly like a living person, you can also measure the maturity level of the collective organization. And I'm sure you guys have experienced that in your work. I'm just going to go back to that point we made earlier, and I'm probably setting this back, so I apologize. But it is, Norman and I had this conversation. You walk into any corporate, you walk into their headquarters, you can feel the way that organize, you can feel its life force, if you like. 
And personally, you can tune into that. And I think that's what you're saying, Norman, isn't it? Yep. What you've said is you, you can take that a next stage, which is you can actually measure that as a key indicator towards the likely success of that as an acquisition. You're 100% right, Robert. If I looked at, as I did, what made the successful, that 30% of organizations that are successful, or I look at any leader or even consultant, what are they doing that's successful? Is they are instinctively or intuitively tapping into a field, a sensing they have about what's going on. Yep. And and what they're sensing is what I call the context and relationship energy. And they just know to work with it, to move with it, to play with it, to dance with it, whatever you want to call it. They they factor that into their decisions. That's what's really making them successful. If you look at those who aren't being successful, they're doing it all through the intellect, through mechanistic, through planning. Mm. And I'm not I'm not saying we should stop that. I'm just saying we should augment those with these other things yeah. that the successful people in, are doing. In, in other words, you've got to merge them both. Absolutely. Norman, in terms of like gauging the maturity of an organization and its ability to acquire and integrate another business successfully, how would you go about determining that level of capability or maturity? Well, we do it through a series of assessment tools. We have one we call a ARC assessment. It's a simple 24-question assessment that measures the levels of issues centered around activity, relationship, and context in the three fields of people, process, and leadership. So we have a kind of a simple way to do it, but we use that just really as a starting point. Think of it as you go into a doctor's office and they'll do an initial scan of your blood pressure and your temperature and all of that. And then they'll start asking you some probing questions. Well, that's what we do. We just go in and, and start peeling the onion that was uh, of that initial assessment. Right. And through that, we get a picture just like just like a doctor. Indeed. What you're doing, Norman, is, is something that I'm – you just sent me back 20 years or more. <laughs> what, what I was doing consulting, one of the firms that I did consulting for actually used to employ industrial psychologists. Yep. And they went into the client first and held a series of – interviews with the the client leadership and then what we got as consultants was uh, almost like a a synopsis of the leadership team and he got all of these insights into how that organization behaved i I can see that with the arc assessment uh, questionnaire so norman what, what happens after that so if that's the first layer of the onion how do you go probing further in terms of determining an organization's maturity well, we use the ARC assessment to start with. We have a maturity scale that defines attributes of people, process, and leadership. So, for example, right. if leaders are called a micromanagement for a better term, that would be a low maturity leader. Right. A high maturity leader would be somebody who know when and how to delegate to people, loves to develop people, loves to give authority away, and and, and but does it in an appropriate way. The same thing with the individuals. So individuals need to have a lot of structure or can mm-hmm. they operate freely on their own? To what yeah. degree? Uh, one of the biggest challenges, and, and this happens in acquisitions, it, it's kind of like a matchmaking situation. You don't want to bring in a low mature organization 
into a high mature organization unless you consciously know what you're getting yourself into. If I've got a group of individuals who expect to be told what to do because they always have been, and now the, the owner founder is gone in six months or 12 months, and now we're trying to manage these people, and we come from an organization that manages by objective, Yep. Uh, those two things are just never going to work. It's very interesting. I think you hit it really on the head here about this notion of a high mature organization acquiring a low mature organization. I think that that's true. And I, I don't think that organizations make that kind of assessment. And oh. the other thing I think is, is fascinating is simply that whole maturity capability right up front. My sense is, is that Organizations don't do that sort of upfront assessment of where their skills are or their weaknesses are, where they need to improve their own internal capability so they are indeed more, can be more successful. Well, I agree with you. I, I think it goes back to we view M&A as transactional, not as a opportunity to understand who we are, what we bring to the table, and who we best fit with. Yep. And I, I've always felt there was a lot of potential to work with M&A folks in general to help increase the success of the acquisitions. What I ran into, and much to what you said, is most of the M&A world is purely transactional. The investment bankers, they don't want anybody like me coming in. Uh, <laughs> you know, they want to close this thing as quickly as possible. And Absolutely. You know, I mean, they're, they're motivated differently. I mean, they're absolutely. motivated by getting deals closed. It's not, they're not interested in deal success. They're interested in deal closure. That's right. They're interested in the transaction, not the success of the acquisition. Yeah. They won't say that publicly, obviously, and, and, and they do do a lot of good work trying to help companies suss out the right acquisitions. But the bottom line is when it comes push, comes to shove, they make their money on the, on the close of the transaction. Exactly. And, and so they won't say no to a bad deal. They That's won't say no to a bad deal. If they think it can close... And, and they can convince the, the acquirer and the seller to make the deal. That's, that's what they'll do. Yep. So you're right. I think the wise acquisitions, and I think that's why we had the success we had, the wise acquisitions are done by those who understand who they are, what they bring to the table, mm -hmm. understand what the uh, target company ha is, who they are, how they fit. You do all that work up front, and then the acquisitions go so much smoother. The due diligence goes smoother, the integration goes quickly, and, and the success out of it is extremely high. You yeah. get the synergies you're really looking for. What I find fascinating about all of this is that, you know, not what you're taking here, Norman, is that very human-centered view on M&A, treating, you know, defining the personalities and that notion of human beings and bringing them into the family because it does change the way you do this. Absolutely. Of, you, know, you wouldn't work. You, you wouldn't do that transactional stuff at home and with with family members. It's just not the way you do things. You know, that's right. It's that's a right. lot more fluid, natural, human-based approach. And you've got all your faculties there: the, the human aspects, your emotions, you engage. Something that somehow gets stripped bare of us when we enter the corporate world. That's a good summary, actually, Toby. You've, you've nailed it in that sense. We would never approach the sort of transactional approach that we take to business with our families. And you, you get a very bad outcome if you try it. <laughs> oh, that, right? I've given oh, that, I totally agree. that That's a great summary, Toby. I think that you hit the nail on the head. Uh, <laughs> and you get so much more energy out of it. You're, you're drawing on the natural creative energy and innovative nature of human beings. 
and, and when you when you tap into that, you release so much more energy into the organization that you almost have to work hard not to be successful. Uh, Indeed. Norman, I, I, look, this has been a fascinating conversation with you. Uh, I, I've personally learned a lot um, here, and it, it's given me some certain insights, which I think I found hard to articulate. So I found myself able to sort of put words around them better as a result of this. So in summary, what are the three major takeaways that the listeners should hear? What, what do you think they should be? I, you know, from an M&A point of view, I would uh, say, number one, make sure you have a good strategy that holds the context for why you want to do a particular acquisition. Number two, treat the acquisitions like you're marrying somebody, however you want to view it. Treat it like it's a relationship issue, not a purchase of, a, of an asset. I guess those are the two big ones. The third one is don't eliminate the the transactional aspects of it. You still have to merge the systems together. You still have to work out different things, but you're doing it with a different orientation and a different energy about it. So yeah, those, those would be the three. Well, Norman, look, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. And I think that's a wrap. Anything from yourself, Robert? I was going to summarize it and, and you guys have, have done it for me. <laughs> but, but, but essentially the takeaway from my point of view is We've always approached M&A as a transactional issue. And what Norman's saying is, that's okay, but on its own, it's not. You've got to layer it with more of a personality issue. You've got to look at the acquisition. It's got energy. It's got innovation. You can feel its life force, so to speak. And you've got to take that into account in much the same way that you would do if you were negotiating in your family. And it's the same principle, and I think it makes absolute solid sense. And unfortunately, there's not too many organizations that do that. They still approach a transactional way and, and then wonder why half of them fail. So yeah. uh, I'm in with you, Toby. I, I think that is a, a really good wrap. Yeah. Norman, it's been a pleasure having you on yeah. this podcast today. And I, I would like to put a marker there and say I, I would hope that maybe at some point in the future we'll have you back for a further discussion around this. I would be absolutely delighted. It's been a real pleasure having this conversation with both of you. Toby, we haven't met before, but it was a great pleasure meeting you today. Thank you very much. Thank you both. And as usual, Toby and I will be back next week with another podcast. And all we have to say right now is bye for now. Bye. Bye.